Okay, this morning we are in Hebrews 13 and chapter 13, verse 11. Chapter 13, verse 11, there's an extended um, argument or metaphor here based on going outside the camp. And I don't know if you've all been here every week when we've talked about this, but I try to get people up to speed because in the summer I know not everybody's here every week. But the camp is being used to, to illustrate the Old Covenant, right? And the, the food laws and the feasts and all the things they had under the Old Covenant. And going back into that camp would be not where you find salvation. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, now Jesus was crucified outside the camp, and, and that's where he's, he bore his reproach. And so we need to come outside the camp, camp meaning the old covenant practices, to Jesus where we find salvation and bear his reproach. Okay, so I'll try not to go too many times over the same stuff, but I want us to understand the basic argument here. Now, we have come to verse 13, Hebrews, excuse me, chapter 13 and verse 11. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 11, where it says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, verse 12, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Hence also let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, reference to Jerusalem, but we are seeking the city which is to come. That's catalogical city, the new Jerusalem, the future messianic kingdom that we're looking for. So this is a very amazing thing. And there's a lot of themes earlier in Hebrews that are being wrapped up here because For example, in chapter 11, it talks about those who are looking for a heavenly city, the the, the patriarchs, and the ones who had no permanent residence here, who were pilgrims, strangers and pilgrims. That was mentioned earlier in Hebrews. And certainly the, the blood atonement that we read in verse 12 is a theme throughout Hebrews. In fact, the book of Hebrews is really one of the best sources of, of uh, teaching about the full orb doctrine of the blood atonement in the New Testament. Certainly there's other passages like Romans, but Hebrews is very, very much uh, centered on Christ's atonement and particularly the blood atonement and all the different ramifications of that. Now, verse 11 here is a, a reference to the day of atonement under the Old Covenant. And on the day of atonement, that was the one day out of the year that the Jews fasted because it said you shall afflict yourselves. They didn't actually call it a fast in, in the Leviticus, but that's how they interpreted afflicting themselves. And so they would fast and they would be uh, mindful of their own sinfulness. And on this Day of Atonement, it was necessary for every Jewish person to um, admit that there are sinners that need forgiveness and to bring the prescribed sacrifice. And it was ordained that the blood would be brought in inside into the holy place to the mercy seat by the high priest on the Day of Atonement 
But they were not allowed to eat those sacrificial animals. And that was in last week we talked about the eating, okay? And where we find grace. And we don't find grace through the eating, but through Christ and His means. So, they were taken not... They weren't to be uh, ate by the or the priests in this case, but taken outside the camp and burned. So the, the blood is brought into the holy place, the bodies of the sacrificial victims taken outside of the camp. And the point is, if they put their trust in the old covenant ritual, they are excluded from the benefits of Christ. That's the whole point of this section. If you put your trust in the old covenant ritual, you're excluded from the benefits of the Christ because only His blood can wash away sins, not the blood of animals. And only His sacrifice that was provided once for all is the way through which we can find uh, atonement. And atonement is no longer found on the Day of Atonement because once Jesus died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust in order to bring us to God, it says in uh, 1 Peter 3.18, then that blood was once for all shed. And there's no further requirement of the shedding of sacri- blood for sacrificial animals. Because it was once for all. And that's a little phrase you can look up in the Bible, once for all, and you'll find it quite often in Hebrews, but it's also in that passage in Peter. So you, you don't make the sacrifice over and over and over again. Uh, a couple passages here. Brian, why don't you look up Leviticus 16.27 and Denise, Leviticus 6.30. And Linda, Exodus 29:14, and Steve, Leviticus 4, 5 through 7, and then also Leviticus 4, 11 through 12. 5 through 7, 11 through 4, 12. Okay, Leviticus 4. So look at, we'll get the Old Testament background. What, what's Leviticus 6 and verse 30? 630. 630. 630, 1627. Well, at least that's what it says here. Now, I could have written it down wrong. This happened before. But no sin offering shall be eaten of which any of the blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. It shall be wholly burned with fire. Okay, that's exactly right. No, none of that meat of the sacrificial animal shall be eaten that, that the blood was brought into the holy place in the tent of meeting. Okay? That particular case, it could not be eaten. It had to be burned with fire. Didn't at some point, didn't they, didn't the Pharisees start selling the meat? Uh, I don't know. I don't know about that detail. No, not not the Day of Atonement. It was a different one. See, the daily offerings are different because it's talking about the one where the blood is brought into the holy place. And that specific one was not to be for the priests. But the other ones, that's different. Okay. Now, Leviticus 16.27. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. And they shall burn it in the fire with fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. Yeah, that's guts. The reason I, yeah, uh, the reason I know that word offal is once I was reading the fishing regulations and they said you couldn't leave offal on the lake, so I had to go look it up and it's guts, right? (laughs) 
You couldn't clean your fish and then just throw the guts in the lake. All right. So I'm <laughs> All right. So uh, anyhow, this was about the Day of Atonement. So this is the reference here in Hebrews. Um, you know, they don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, as we discussed several years ago when we started this study. It, nobody knows who wrote it. And, but whoever did had a very, very deep knowledge of the Old Covenant. And also, the, the interesting thing about the author of the book of Hebrews, not only did this person really know in depth the issues of, of Judaism and Old Covenant and all of these things, plus a masterful knowledge of the Greek language, which seems like a strange combination to be, to be that much knowledgeable about Judaism and also brilliant in the Greek language, which is unusual in the New Testament. And which is one of the main reasons they don't think Paul wrote this, because Paul's Greek was not this sophisticated. And uh, so, that, so nobody knows who wrote it, but it's an interesting, brilliant argumentation. Plus, it takes on some of the characteristics of Jewish midrash uh, as far as the type of arguments that they bring up. So it could, have some, it could have been somebody Jewish who was converted and also was brilliantly educated so that they knew Greek very, very well, too. Who knows? Well, when we get to heaven, we'll find out who wrote Hebrews. Huh? Yeah, the Holy Spirit inspired it. True. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, now we had Leviticus 24:23. No, no, no. Exodus 29:14. Exodus 29:14. But the flesh of the bull and its hide and its refuse, you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Okay. Same. So there's another. A reiteration of that same law. Leviticus 4, 5 through 7. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before <laughs> the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. And all the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Okay, and then 11 and uh, 12. But the hide of the bull in all its flesh with its head and its legs and its entrails and its refuse, that is, all the rest of the bull, he is to bring out to a clean place outside the camp where the ashes are poured and burn it on wood with fire, where the ashes are poured out in it. How it shall be burned. Okay, there it is. So, several times this Day of Atonement was mentioned uh, in the Old Testament with a specific reference of outside the camp. So, uh, the author of Hebrews is taking this outside of the camp idea and applying it to Christ who was crucified outside the camp. That's the point. Now, I was going to cite my favorite uh, guy here on this. Lane, 5.30. William Lane says this about, about this passage. is almost certain to be interpreted metaphorically as the particle, participle having tasted eating from the altar. Oh, wait, that was in verse... Excuse me, sorry, I was still studying verse 10. Here's where I start... The prohibition of eating from the altar is tied to the prescription of the law for the annual day of atonement is set forth in Leviticus 16 and in Leviticus 
in Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16.27 specified that both animals whose blood had been brought into the sanctuary for atonement ritual may not be used as sacrificial food. Leviticus 6.30. The remains must be taken outside the holy priest's sink of the camp for disposal in a region of cultic impurity by servants of the tabernacle, Leviticus 16.28. The carcasses of the young bull and the goat will be burned to prevent their remains from being eaten, eaten, which we already saw. The writer finds a correspondence between the provision of the Levitical cultus. Remember that word there doesn't, isn't negative in theological terminology. It simply means a prescribed set of rituals within any given religion, in this case, the Old Covenant, and the fact that Jesus suffered death outside the city gate. By the agency of the high priest, he regards the action of the high priest on the Day of Atonement as his primary distinctive function, so that in Hebrews, the expression high priest customarily signals that the field of reference is the annual atonement ritual. The explicit reference to the action of bringing the blood of the victims into the sanctuary is significant for underscoring the high value that the writer attributes to blood as the medium of access to God. Now, to summarize what we've learned in the first 12 and a half chapters of Hebrews, is that under the New Covenant, the blood that gives us access to God is the blood of Jesus Christ. And under the New Covenant, the blood is shed once for all. And under the New Covenant... It's not applied in an earthly sanctuary. It's applied in the heavenly one. Okay? And that Jesus passed through the heavens and that He is ascended and He sits in authority at the right hand of God. His blood was poured out in the heavenly tabernacle, uh, Hebrews 9. And therefore, the people of faith who come to Him in faith, uh, without faith it's impossible to please God, Hebrews 11, those people have access to God because the blood continually cleanses them and gives them this access. All right? And because they're coming through this once-for-all blood atonement, they come boldly to the throne of grace where normally nobody goes boldly into the holy place. Even the, even the high priest that went in once a year went in very circumspectly because if he did anything wrong, he would die. And so how much greater is it that instead of an annual, annual sacrifice, you have a once-for-all one. Instead of a timid access for one person, you have bold access for the whole people of God. And instead of an external cleansing from sin, as it was in the Old Covenant, we have an internal cleansing because the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so uh, the superiority of the New Covenant over the Old is manifold, manifold and it is... Uh, explained to us very clearly in this book of Hebrews. So, any Christianity that somehow is devoid of this blood atonement is not Christianity. As a matter of fact, the blood atonement is why we have fellowship and is the basis of our fellowship. Did you know that? That's in 1 John chapter 1. It says that we walk in the light as He is in the light. The blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all sin. And we have fellowship with one another. That's in First John. So, as I pointed out in some of my writings, uh, 
for example, in the Purpose Driven Church, one of the purposes, according to Pastor Warren, is fellowship. One of the five purposes of the church is fellowship. This is true. But in the Purpose Driven Church, there's no blood atonement. Or if there is one, you can't find it because it's just not, it's nowhere described in, in their literature and it's not publicly preached. And so my response was, you can't have fellowship without a blood atonement. Right? So this, this fellowship purpose is something other than what we're just talking about in the New Testament. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, none of the, none of his other things, you'd have to have blood at the top of the list. <laughs> exactly. And then everything else would fall. Exactly. Because that way to access into fellowship with God and one another is through the blood. That's the beginning. That's how, once your sins are cleansed, then you have access to God's throne and to the fellowship of the beloved brethren who also are blood-bought children of God. That's what fellowship is. Fellowship isn't a bunch of people in a certain community with similar interests getting together. Uh, there's an article published right now on Worldview Weekend that I just posted on this matter about quenching the Holy Spirit. Okay, But let me give you an example of how this works and then we'll look a little more into Hebrews here. Uh, one of the things that typically is done in, in contemporary churches is divide people up in the, into the, what you think their common interests might be. All right? So you just get all the people in your church and you say, okay, all the single moms, you go over here. And all the divorced men, you go over here. And all the... Uh, seniors go over here, and all of the 20-somethings go over here, and all the college students go over here, and all the, now you get together, now everybody with a minivan and kids at soccer, you're in this group. Now, now why do they do this? Because they have, yeah, they have, don't have the blood atonement as the basis for their fellowship. Their fellowship is based on things they are in the flesh. Okay? And, and the, the idea is because these people don't have this common thing that we have, which is fellowship because of the blood and a common knowledge of Jesus Christ that transcends gender, that transcends age, that transcends idiosyncrasies, that transcends hobbies and, and personal interests, because this is an eternal fellowship that we have that's already initiated here now. So we're having a foretaste of heavenly fellowship when we fellowship here with the blood-bought children of God, right? But because they have eliminated that, or the other possibility is, well, we still believe in that, but most of our people are seekers and they don't know about that. And we don't want any barriers between the redeemed and the non-redeemed, so we'll make the basis of fellowship things that everybody has in common, whether they're a Christian or not. And so we're going to get together with all the people that are like us so that we'll be happier. Now, I'm suggesting that that is quenching the Holy Spirit. That's a quenching of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit works through the means of fellowship that we have, which is this blood atonement. Without the atonement, any religion would have a system of works which does not cleanse your conscience. And therefore, because your conscience is not cleansed, you tend to work all the harder. Okay, let me reiterate that because of these fans. He said every religion that doesn't have a blood atonement has a system of works. All right? And he says because your conscience is cleansed by the blood, then you have to work all the harder to try to make up for that. 
And so you just make put everybody to work being religion, religious. Another related matter on this blood atonement and a day of atonement. Someone asked me a very good question last week after Sunday school. The person who asked it isn't here, but I'll answer it to the whole group because I bet you other people have the questions. She said this. Somebody said, um, isn't it true? The issue was about church discipline. Okay. Let me give you the background. If you go into the, under the Old Covenant, okay, if you go under the Old Covenant, let's turn to it. Let's just do a related thing. It has to do with church discipline, and it has to do with the Day of Atonement. In Numbers chapter 15, and then I'll, then I'll give you the background, then I'll reiterate the question that this person asked, and then I'm going to give an answer to it. Okay? We're going to start with Numbers 15, verse 27. This is just sort of some background to what was necessary as far as finding atonement under the Old Covenant system. Numbers 15:27. Also, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat as a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. Notice they have a system of forgiveness under the Old Covenant. They didn't. They weren't saved by works. They were saved by faith. But they had to believe that these things were from God and then admit they were sinners and have a blood atonement. And it says they'll be forgiven. Is that right? So that's where they found forgiveness. Now look at verse 29. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. Now that's the background for the book of Hebrews teaching on about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or apostasy. Apostasy is a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandments. The person shall be cut off, and his yellow will be upon him. So there's no forgiveness. Now, I want to discuss the difference between unintentional and defiant. Now, unintentional doesn't imply that we're not responsible for our sin. These people were responsible. Well, unintentional means this. I agree, this person is saying, any one of us, I agree with the law of God. I, I agree with God's right and sovereign right to be the lawgiver. I agree with the, the word of the Lord is true. And I believe that God is indeed the righteous judge. And I agree that whatever I do, this... Uh, not in perfect keeping with God's law, is sin. Right? And therefore, believing that, I am very conscious that I need atonement. Because I know I'm a sinner. And so on the Day of Atonement, I'm coming with this blood, or the high priest is doing it on my behalf, because I know I need this. I have sin. Unintentional meaning, I didn't want to say, God, you have no right to tell me this. Not that I'm... Okay. So that's one law. But the other person is a blasphemer says, who's going to tell me what to do? I didn't break God's law. I can do whatever I see fit. And it's a rebellion against the revealed will of God. The person in such rebellion isn't finding atonement because the high priest goes in there with that blood. 
they're not finding forgiveness because they're not admitting they're a sinner. Does that make sense? All right, now let's apply this to church discipline. Because somebody asked me this question. She said, well, some of my friends say that why would you have church discipline for anybody because we're all sinners anyhow. And being how we all have some kind of hidden sin or something we're doing we're not supposed to do or something we're thinking we're not supposed to think, we're all equally sinful all the time, so what's the point of church discipline? You might as well throw everybody out of the church. So she was arguing, not not the person from our church, but her friend was arguing against church discipline on the grounds that all are sinners. Well, they're ignoring this distinction here. Now, church discipline under the New Covenant would be the same thing as this. It's defiant sin. And so in the case of 1 Corinthians 5, for example, the person that was involved with immorality with a relative, 1 Corinthians 5, and Paul says to them, you have, you're not mourning over this. You're not doing anything about it. You're allowing this to go on, and you're not taking any action, and you think this is just fine. And he, and he, and he demanded that they, do, that they take action, do church discipline. If the person refuses to repent, you do the Matthew 18 or whatever, and then you deal with it. So what's the difference? The difference is this issue of defiance. So church discipline would be for the one who is committing some sort of an offense that would bring a scandal to the gospel and defiantly claiming a right to do so without repentance. Does that make sense? All right? But if somebody fell into sin and said, I've sinned against God in thy sight, I'm not worthy to be your son, forgive me, and help me get delivered, that person is still part of fellowship. They just need victory, and you help them get the victory. But if somebody says, I have a right to do this, and who are you to tell me what to do? That's defiance, and that's where you have church discipline. So that, that's why this is a valid category, even under the New Covenant. Yes? Yes, that's another way to put it. Repentance meaning turning away from it. Or the other one, sin without repentance. Well, whatever it may be. Let's say someone, I mean, there's a lot of sins. We're all sinners. Would you agree with that? Okay. There's all kinds of sins. And there, who, anybody would say, I'm without sin. The Bible says they're a liar. So let's just say whatever it might be. Let's say the sin is getting angry when you're driving. Well, I thought I'd choose something that maybe we get, you know, somebody could say amen about. Okay, and we were talking about this. We were talking about this one a couple of years ago, and Dick Couple was sitting over here, and and we were trying to decide whether it was anybody could really overcome that or not. And and so Dick and I made a pact that the two of us would drive for each of us would drive for a whole week without getting angry, and come back and report to the class. And you know what happened? It worked. Because every time I was going to get angry, I thought, no, I got to go back to that class. I don't want to. <laughs> and I was kind of driving. And by the end of the week, I was just peacefully driving along. Oh, they blocked my way. You know, that's the way it goes. And we came back, and I said, it worked pretty good. And Dick said, yeah, I was able to do it, but I'm out of this. <laughs> One week is my limit. <laughs> I think I actually lasted a month or two, but. <laughs> I got to remember that. But but whatever the case may be, you know, something, whatever it is, a true regenerate son or daughter of God wants the Lord to cleanse us. And we want to see progress. 
And we don't want to be defiling the Lord or causing shame to the Gospel. And may the Lord help us. But, um, and people have, depending on where your mission is, sometimes people come into the church with some really serious problems when they first meet Jesus. They may be in very, very serious bondage to whatever. But God will still give them victory and forgiveness. And we may have to have some patience with some... But nevertheless, they're not defiant. But what's not forgiven is defiance. If somebody says, I have a right to fornication or whatever it is they're doing, and you don't, you can't tell me anything, that person has to come under church discipline. And that's Matthew 18. You go to them, and then if there's two or three witnesses, you go with the witness. If you don't have two or three witnesses, and they say, and they deny it, you can't do anything. Because then you haven't established a fact. But if the facts established, you can take action, and they eventually are removed from fellowship. Why? Not because you're hoping for their damnation, but because you're hoping for their salvation. Does that make sense? When you regard them as a heathen, or then, then you see them as an object for gospel preaching, or as Paul said, turning over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that their spirit might be saved. In other words, they may get beat up out there and decide the Bible was right, and I want to repent. Okay, so we're always hoping for salvation. Yes. That's the basis for a lot of false conversion. Also, is the repentance aspect isn't preached. People will go forward or sign a card. Uh, yeah. Oh, there's some doctrines out there, and some of the people that teach these are very, very angry people. I, I, I don't know. I'm going to talk about that a little bit in my sermon. But there are people that. For example, uh, this no lordship salvation that says faith is mental assent and anybody that gives mental assent is saved no matter how wicked their lifestyle remains. And they say anybody that doesn't teach that is teaching salvation by works. And they just go, they just rip into people. And they hate John MacArthur. He's like, if you want to know if somebody believes in no lordship salvation, just ask them what they think of John MacArthur. And if they go ballistic, that's probably why. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, how can you have church discipline if, you're, if salvation means no more than mental assent? Because everybody says, well, I, yeah, I, I believe Jesus existed. Okay. But if your life isn't changed, the sign is you're not converted. And you can't have fellowship if you're not converted. Yes. Yeah, yeah, defiance would be the kind of the key word there. It's it's a prideful thing that we are going to determine ourselves what the rules are, not God. Okay, then the example of the Pharisee and the publican of that. Yes, exactly. The Pharisee says, "I thank you. I'm not a sinner like these other ones." You find forgiveness. Sinners find forgiveness. The righteous don't need it, at least in their own mind. Right? Yes, uh, Nicole. Yes. Yeah, to repeat what Nicole said, she, she said, Jesus said, blessed are those who are mourn. And mourning there doesn't mean just going around dole all the time like somebody just died, but it means mourning over your own sin and your need for forgiveness. That, and, and there's a certain dissatisfaction with this sinful world that every born-again Christian has. You know, if, if, you, if you never ever feel like, uh, come quickly, Lord Jesus, this is too sinful, then I don't know. I mean, that's just what you see when you, when you, when you know the Lord. Whereas when you're not saved, you just think the world's not, it's the way it's supposed to be here. Who knows?
Yes. I've asked you this question before, but I think now would be a good time to address it again. Uh, blessed are those that mourn, and you realize your sinfulness. Mm-hmm. You have the joy of the Lord when you, when you realize you're such a sinner. Yeah, the question was, when you do realize what a sinner you are, how can you ever have the joy of the Lord? Well, the same, the same thing that we've been talking about, the blood atonement. I mean, that's why we sing songs about the blood atonement in our worship, because we find joy that God has released us from our sin. Um, like that one hymn that we sing, uh, His Eye Diffused a Quickening Ray. The person is in the dungeon. And Can It Be, I think is the name of the song, hymn. And the chains fall off. And the, and, the, and the gate of the dungeon flies open and out you come in newness of life. Well, there's a reason for joy. So uh, that's what it's all about. So I'm suggesting that we need to find the, the terms of fellowship in the Scriptures. And it begins with the blood atonement because that's what makes us one. And then, having our sins cleansed, we are... We have, so, oh, I was talking about segregating people according to the flesh. I was thinking about after I wrote that little thing for Worldview Weekend, there is a passage about that in 2 Corinthians 5, where it says, If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. And it, but it says before that, Henceforth we know no one after the flesh. So if you divide a church up into the soccer moms over here, and the divorcees over here, and the 20 somethings over here, and the retired people over here, you're suggesting that we really just know each other after the flesh. The things that make us one are things of the flesh, not things of the Spirit. But when we gather as one body, and I'm not saying you can't have Sunday school for kids because based on their ability to learn you know, the, the, in their vocabulary. I'm not arguing against that. But, I, but once we reach adulthood and we have our, a, a full-blown vocabulary, the best we're going to get, <laughs> we're growing in it, and we can read the Bible together, then I don't see any reason to be dividing us up any further than that because we're, our, our one, our unity and our reason for being together is because we're all new creatures in Christ, not because of some other idiosyncrasy. Yes? When you're not in a group like that, one of the things I've noticed about Twin City Fellowship is some of the better conversations scripturally that I've had is with older people and people a lot younger than myself who I learn from. And, yes. Uh, when I get away from people that are like me, that's better. It, yeah, you can learn from a... T- <laughs> that's probably good. All right. <laughs> you know, away from Brian. No, <laughs> no the point is that we, 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 we gain something from the full orb fellowship of the various people from teenagers to people in their 90s. And because our unity is in Christ, not in some community thing. But so that was one of the casualties of the secret church because they, their definition of fellowship is not a biblical definition. It's, it's a community gathering of people that have something in common. Saddleback Sam. All right. So we're uh, talking about the blood atonement. Uh, Lane says the final phrase concerning the incineration of the carcasses outside the camp provides the point of transition for speaking of Jesus who suffered death outside the city gate. The import of tying together 10 through 11 is clear. Those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat from the altar, which typically foreshadows the sacrifice of Christ. Those who continue to frame their conduct by the cultic, again, religious 
arrangement of the Old Covenant are excluded from the benefits of Christ- that the Christians enjoy, which is the result of the fulfillment of the t- atonement ritual and Jesus' death on Golgotha. So his argument is that if you just go back to the Old Covenant inside the camp, you're excluded from the benefits of Christ. That's, that's what this argument in Hebrews is all about. All right? So, going on then to verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his blood, suffered outside the gate. Now, let's talk about sanctification in its various, various nuances. Sanctification, the, the, let's, let's go back again to the old covenant idea. When it talks about being clean or unclean in the book of Leviticus, it isn't exactly the same concept as sinful or not sinful. All right? It's, 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 uh, the concept has to do with, um, suitable to come into God's presence or unsuitable to come into God's presence. So if you were unclean, some of the things that made people unclean under the Old Covenant weren't sins. They were just part of ordinary life. I did a, st- a whole study on the book of Leviticus one time because I taught it. I went like spent two hours taught through all of Leviticus. That was my assignment. So I had to really learn Leviticus. And if you read Leviticus, you'll see that a lot of the things that ha- that caused people to be unclean had nothing to do with them co- committing some sin. It just had to do with life. So ordinary life kept making you unclean. All right. And so unclean didn't mean you were terribly sinful. It meant you were not suitable to come into God's presence. So they were a people that lived with a continual reminder of the holiness of God and the otherness of God. God is both transcendent and imminent. And these people were at a camp with which God dwelt in their midst as a holy God. And they were continually being reminded that they're not really suitable to be this close to God. And that they needed to listen to his prescriptions in order to be able to be the people of God in the presence of God. So holiness in that context means having been made suitable to be in God's presence. Or suitable for divine or holy use rather than profane use. And not necessarily sinful or not sinful, although certainly sinfulness made you unsuitable. But so did all a lot of other things in life. Now, what we understand now under the New Covenant that's so uh, astounding and so much good news is that the blood of Jesus permanently makes all of the people of God suitable to be the Lord's people. And suitable to come into His presence continually because of the blood continually cleanses us from all sin. So therefore, when it says we may boldly come to the throne of grace... That doesn't change because of things that happen in daily life. So it doesn't, ha- it doesn't change because something happened, like a childbirth. A childbirth made someone unclean for so long. Remember I was preaching about what Mary had to go through, the purification? Childbirth doesn't make you so you can't go to the throne of grace under the new covenant. And nor does any other things of ordinary life. And even our own sin, assuming we're not defiant and we're willing to repent, doesn't keep us. We always have this holiness that has been imparted to us by the imputation of Christ's righteousness. This is a legal holiness and it's a legal standing before God. That's the very foundation of Christian holiness. 
Now, this legal holiness that's imputed to those who come to God by faith also has a practical counterpart, which is called sanctification. So, uh, there's a passage in Hebrews that says, By one offering, he's perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So, you have both the positional, sanctified forever, made right before God, and the practical, those who are being sanctified. The process. So the process of progressive sanctification is God actually practically changing us by His means so that we become more like Christ progressively through life. And that that doesn't imply continual improvement every day. There may be some detours. Um, And I think I showed a little clip a few years ago of John Gerstner talking about that, about this road it's East Highway so-and-so out in Pennsylvania, but it's so mountainous that you get on East Highway so-and-so and half the time it seems like you're going west. But as a matter of fact, if you stay on the highway, you do end up east. It just has a few detours. And he says sometimes that's an analogy of the Christian life. <laughs> sometimes you may feel like you're going south when you should be going north, but if you stay with the Lord, you'll end up north. And that's why I'm such a big believer in means of grace, that the things that God has ordained that he would use to change lives, if we incorporate those into our churches and our fellowships, what God said, God will do by his means. And if you give the the sanctified people, so you take a group of people who have been blood-bought and made suitable to come in God's presence through the blood atonement of Christ, and those people are given means of grace, the word of God, fellowship, prayer, communion, these sort of things. The result will be, because they're the people of God, He is sanctifying them, and they will change. You'll have more mature people, more people with more victory, and we can see actual changes when people come to the Lord and walk with the Lord. That's what I believe. And it's not, this is not a therapeutic process. It's a process of faith. We begin by faith, and we walk by faith. We don't begin by faith and get perfected by therapy. (laughs) All right, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Now, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood. So here's the blood of the covenant. So made holy, suitable for God's service, and actually serving God. Qualified to approach God in worship. Blasphemers were taken outside of the camp and stoned. In the Old Covenant. Anybody who was defiant was a blasphemer. Anybody who came along and it was the day of, a covenant, of the atonement, they said, I don't need atonement. That's to you. I'll do whatever I want. <laughs> they die. That's it. Yes. We have um, positionally security in knowing where we are before God. We also have like responsibility practically, like it calls out like Romans uh, chapter 12, 1 and 2. To be constantly renewing our mind. Yes. So there is some responsibility there for us. There is responsibility. Our, our very first responsibility is to put ourselves under the means of grace. So that's why Hebrews that teaches so much about the blood of atonement says, "Do not neglect the assembly of yourselves together as the practice of some, but but encourage one another into love and good good works." Uh, last week I preached about. Uh, Prophecy, despise not prophetic utterances, defined it as every believer's ability to bring out the implications and applications of Scripture and apply them to one another. 
So in your case that you're asking about, Robert, what if someone was redeemed but determined they didn't need any other Christians, they didn't need the body, they didn't need to sit under the teaching of the Word of God, and they didn't need prayer, and they're just going to kind of go through life and assume that everything will be okay. How are they going to grow in the grace and knowledge of God? Because they're not putting themselves in a position to do so. So that is our responsibility. And, and the Bible starts with the doctrine and ends with ethical guidance. Yes. You know, you mentioned in the Old Testament about you know some of the things that happened and God was swift on taking care of business. Yes. You know, but in the New Testament, when we talk about the means of grace, God gives people time to get it. There's a delay. Yeah. There's a delay. So, in other words, you know, back then, you know, people were stoned for this or, you know, justice happened quickly. Especially when they were defiant. And then now, you know, here, because you got the means of grace and society as a whole is taking that. Well, there's plus a delay in God's judgment. Yeah. I mean, you get grace for paying your bills. You get grace, you know. <laughs> yeah, get, okay. You don't feel like there's any consequences right. yeah, many got, times. Okay. That's true. And, uh, for example, Korah's rebellion, when they defied Moses as God's ordained spokesperson, said, no, it's not Moses, it can be anybody else. And boom, they went right into hell. That was it. <laughs> so it was pretty obvious that God had chosen Moses. Um, so we already looked at Numbers 15. We looked at the difference between defiant sin and unintentional sin. I have a couple more passages here. Um, uh, Cindy, could you look up Leviticus 24-23 and Mark 15-20-24, okay? Yeah, Leviticus 24-23. Then Moses spoke to the sons of Israel, and they brought the one who had cursed outside the camp and stoned him with stones. So they actually did it. A blasphemer was taken out and stoned. That's what God said. Okay? Yes. Uh, 1520 to 24, Leviticus. No, Mark 1520 to 24. Okay. Hello. And they. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to the crucifixion. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on the way in front of the country and forced him to carry the cross. And they brought, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him there wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. Thank you, Larry. That was this passage where they took Jesus outside the camp and crucified him. So that was what it was said here. Uh, yes? Oh, uh, the significance was, the, the, in this passage, the bodies of the animals that were sacrificed for the Day of Atonement, the blood was taken inside to the altar, the animals were taken outside the camp and burned. And there's an analogy to Jesus who was sacrificed outside the camp. And so here, metaphorically, the camp was the old covenant in Jerusalem. And outside the camp was Jesus where the church goes to meet God. Um, let me write this, uh, read this thing from Lane. 
The writer alludes to the cross in terms of the sacrificial offerings on the Day of Atonement on his assumption that Leviticus 16 gives a reliable preview of its antitype. The parallelism is particularly instructive. Jesus' death on Golgotha corresponds to the removal of the bodies outside the camp. The work of redemption, however, expressed in the same as the sanctifying of the people by Jesus' blood, corresponds to the bringing of the blood of the sacrifices into the most holy place. Jesus in his death on the cross opened up for others access to God, which they themselves and the old Levitical arrangement could not provide. He suffered death as their representative in order to consecrate the people through his own blood. The distinctive formulation evokes the thought of the blood covenant, blood of the covenant rather than of propitiatory blood, which that's another concept that you can read about in Romans. Propitiatory blood means averting God's wrath. The blood of the covenant means the signification, the signifying of entrance into God's presence. So it's just it's sort of the two sides of one coin. The reason we can't come into God's presence is his wrath is directed against our sin, we'd die, right? And so propitiation is the aversion of that wrath. But the other side of it is the fact that having the blood atonement, now we have access to God, and there's this positive sense of entering and finding fellowship and finding grace. Yes, Steve. So Jesus, Jesus being taken outside the camp is a picture of, of the sacrifice. Yep. To the, in the old in the old covenant. Right. But it's also a picture of the new covenant. It's also a picture of the blood on the altar. Okay. But according to Hebrews, the blood is applied in the heavenly altar. All right. Once for all. So the two sides of the coin is both Jesus as the Lamb, the Passover Lamb, and the atonement. Yeah. The, the blood signifies two things. I'd say aversion of wrath and entrance into fellowship. As holy people, atonement. Yes. The fact that Jesus was crucified outside the camp have any relation to the fact that the Gentiles would come in? Well, I think that that's signified in several different ways. One of the ways he asked about whether that signified Gentiles can come in. Well, one of the things that was interesting was that the inscription "Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews," was in three languages. And also that the crucifixion, which would be the languages of the known world at the time, I mean, anybody that might walk by could read it in their language. And the crucifixion evidently took place where there would be traffic so people would see it, which the Romans did for a reason, because they wanted to scare people uh, you know, into not breaking their laws. So they would make the place of torturing their uh, criminals out on a main thoroughfare, when people come by, we see these people hanging on crosses, dying. And the implication when you saw them was, don't do whatever they did. <laughs> All right? It's, but I think that the fact that it happened that way was God signifying that this sacrifice is for everyone, not just the Jews. Yes? Why well, at Passover they put the blood over the door and they ate the lamb inside their house? Here they put the blood, but they get rid of the sacrifice. Right. Because the Day of Atonement had its own specific rules that were different than any of the other ones. That one particular day was the day they couldn't eat the victim. It had to be taken outside the camp and burned. 
Why? Because that's the way it was prescribed by the law. Now, the book of Hebrews is just taking that and making a metaphorical use of it to describe Jesus. Now, it could very well be, and I wouldn't be surprised, that the reason the law said that was to prefigure Christ being crucified outside the camp. But the Passover was a different feast. Yes? Mm-hmm. Then when it comes to um, teaching on Good Friday and Easter, you know, lots of times the emphasis is on Easter. Good Friday gets passed over. What really took place on Good Friday? Easter is the hope that we will rise again. Yeah. But it all has to happen at the cross. Right. That's a good point. She said that, if you couldn't hear that, that some of the... That, that for example, on Good Friday and Easter, we tend to, a lot of churches, Good Friday kind of gets skipped over, and then Easter is the big thing. We like that, the positive. But we need the whole teaching of God. That, that the wrath of God and the love of God are both taught. Now, somebody sent around an interesting little essay. I can't remember who wrote the essay, but it was sent around in some of our email fellowship. And it pointed out, and I've done this myself, I've gone through all of the sermons in the book of Acts just to see how the apostles preached. All right? Now, people say that if you want to reach the lost, you just have to preach on the love of God. That's kind of what you're talking about. Let's just preach on the love of God. But, of course, you're disagreeing with that, Luann. But here's an interesting thing. If you look at the proclamation to the lost in the book of Acts, not once did they preach on the love of God. The love of God is not mentioned in Acts 2, it's not mentioned in Acts 4, it's not mentioned in Acts 8. Uh, you just go through all of the sermons in the book of Acts. Now, it doesn't, I'm not saying the apostles didn't believe in the love of God, but that's not what they preached to the lost. Because if you say to the lost, God loves you, they already believe that. Right? They don't need to repent for God to love them. Now, I'm not saying God doesn't love everybody. Now, some people try to accuse us of that. And never that's another debate. But I believe God does love everybody. And I believe John 3.16 says God loves everybody. But being loved by God won't do you any good if you end up in hell. Right? So, God's love in general grace is seen day by day. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. God allows people to blaspheme Him and have a good crop. Does He not? Uh, people can blaspheme God and have a good job, make a lot of money, and have a wonderful family. But, that's because God is patient and loving. But the message of the Gospel doesn't hit home if that's what you preach. Because they already believe that. And so the message that the apostles preached was that people were sinful and had done specific sins and they needed to repent. And that they were facing God's wrath. Does that make sense? Alright, so if you truncate the message by taking out all the parts that people don't like and create a new entity that has things that are true in the Bible but divorced from the rest, you'll never see the need for a blood atonement. Why do I need a blood atonement if God loves me anyhow? Alright, so next week we will begin with verse 13 and talk about the reproach of Christ that we find outside the camp.
go outside the camp and bear his reproach. We'll be soon done with Hebrews, and when we are, we'll start in 2 Corinthians. Now, please help me by picking these chairs up and kind of folding them away and leaving this room open. Thank you.